Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You're about to hear part of a show that we did up in Great Barrington on Friday. We had some technical difficulties. We weren't able to go live on the air at the time, so we recorded it for you. You're going to hear interviews with a whole bunch of filmmakers and the actress Mary Kay Place. And then we decided also, you know, why why stick only with the Berkshire International Film Festival? Why not check out the biggie, which is Cannes? So we'll uh, talk to Pete Hammond, one of the critics who was at Cannes, about what it's like to go there. Uh, and try to figure out what the important films are. So hang in there with us. Uh, It's kind of a two-part show today. We're live from Great Barrington. We're at the Berkshire International Film Festival. At Cannes this year, they had a rule that you couldn't be on the red carpet if you didn't wear high heels. But we have a red carpet here at the uh, Great Barrington Triplex, and people are are in all kinds of footwear and possibly uh, barefoot as well. They have hundreds of movies that they're showing here this year. Only 30% of them feature James Franco. I think that's an all-time low. I don't really keep those kinds of statistics. So we're going to begin by talking to the person who founded this and runs this uh, and sitting with her, one of the jurors, Mary Kay Place, is here with us, a renowned and beloved actress. And she's so nice, too. She's nothing like on Big Love. She's not that person. She's just the nicest but very sleep-deprived person uh, that you could possibly hope to meet. Kelly Vickery is uh, here. She's the founder uh, also of the festival. Kelly, just start us off here. I, in fact, I, I made up numbers here. Uh, how many films are you showing in Great Barrington and Pittsfield this year? Well, overall, we're showing 80 films. Um, we're showing all of them in Great Barrington, and then we take a selection and ha- put them up in Pittsfield as well. So, yeah, 80. That's a record number for us this year. And meanwhile, Mary Kate Place, you are, you are a juror, as you have been in the past. First of all, how do they get you to come here and be a juror? You don't live in the Brookshires. You, you're bi-coastal, right? Because of Cindy Wick and, and Chan Gibson, who are friends from L.A. and who are friends with on, Kelly. And on the advisory board. That was my connection. This is my fourth year, and it's really, I love coming every year. It's really a great festival. Before we even plunge into the festival, your many fans want to know oh, what you're up to right now. So you're in a film that's not actually here at the Berkshire International Film Festival, the new Blythe Danner movie. Tell us about that movie. It's called I'll See You in My Dreams. It's a very simple, uh, streamlined film, but it's about aging, loss, finding joy in your life again. Uh, it's really a very nice film. It sounds like my life, actually. Aging, loss, finding joy. <laughs> You may be hearing from my lawyers. I'm not getting any uh, residuals from residuals. this. Residuals. Well, yeah. it, it premiered at Sundance. Right. It and went, we wanted it, yeah. but it's already released in theaters, so ah. that goes against the BIF policy. Yeah. And what, what do you play in it, Mary Kay? I just play a friend of Blythe Danner's. A lot of my stuff was cut, but I think it was a wise choice because it's such a streamlined film. But it's So we all play a bridge once a week or a couple of times a week together. But it's a really nice film. And you're also going back to Getting On, right? I'm going back to the HBO show Getting On, and I'm going to do a film this summer, which I can't say the name of yet because we haven't totally closed it. It's Star Wars. No. (laughs) But anyway, I'm excited about it and looking forward to it, and that'll be in the New York area, so that'll be fun. Oh, good. Kelly, I'm sort of always looking for themes. So, so far I've seen three movies, all of which seem to ask the question, is this worth dying for? Is something worth dying for? Last night we saw Meru, which is about mountain climbing. It's about three guys taking these incredible risks. 
and really putting their lives in incredible jeopardy because somehow or other they've made this calculation that it's it's worth it. I just saw a movie called, uh, I think it's called Above and Beyond. I get the mm-hmm. titles. Yep. But this is about this uh, sort of makeshift squadron of fighter, bomber, and transport pilots who became the Israeli Air Force in 1948. They were all former, for the most part, former American service right. men who just sort of came back. But they also decided, I might get killed, but this is, and I don't have to do this. It's not my country, really. But, yeah, this is worth right. dying for. And then we're going to be talking to the makers uh, later of Frame by Frame, which is about shooting an F. So there's a theme, right? Is this worth well, dying for? Well, there's a theme. I get you know, it's uh, people following their passions. A lot of a lot of those, and and having a higher calling, or just having, um, talking to the filmmakers last night from Meru, uh, or the climbers, I should say, it's just in them. It's just who they are. It's it's how they live and breathe. And I think uh, frame by frame, again, you'll talk to the filmmakers, but that's uh, their passion to get to tell those stories mm-hmm. through through their their camera. So. Sure, that's a theme. Frame by Frame is about doing photography in Afghanistan post-Taliban, but where right. it's still this pretty to be a photojournalist, and it's scary enough anywhere, but in Afghanistan it's a far more risky oh, thing. Yeah. So Mary Kay plays as a juror. First of all, are you juror, uh, a juror for narrative this year or for this documentary? This year it's narrative. We yeah. alternate yeah. every year. And so what, what makes its case for you? I mean, in other words, what's going to win your heart the most? Well, I'm like Elvis. He says, it don't move me. Uh, he would remarking on a song. He said, "It don't move me. Yeah. I, I like to be moved. I want to feel something. I want to experience something. I want to be emotionally involved in the story, even if it has nothing to do with my life. I find that a great film and great storytelling, you can relate totally, even if you have no experience with the thing they're talking about. There's a universality about the humanity of the people and the story and the emotions, and that I like to experience something. And I don't like to feel that I'm uh, hearing a structured screenplay that doesn't, isn't breathing. I like films that talk about humanity of what it is to be a person and a human being. And I, I've, I was saying to Mary Kay before we started, Kelly, it does seem, maybe it's because we're at a film festival, so we're... I think people get especially keyed up here. I mean, I've been in films where people have been profusely weeping. I've been last night. You heard people sort of gasping, and mm-hmm. I, I, maybe it's just because people's senses are a little bit heightened because they know they're at a big event. But I feel like people connect emotionally in, in an environment like this one. Oh, there's no question. I mean, I think you know, you get caught up in in festivals. I, I think you know, music festivals, theater festivals, film festivals. You know, you're here for an experience and to experience. You know, one of the great things about festivals is that also is that you're meeting the filmmakers. The filmmakers are here. You're able to not only see their story on, on film, but you're, you're also able to talk to them. And I, I think that that creates a connection that creates emotion in and of itself. You know, uh, Mary Kay, I was asking you before whether being at something like this changes your perspective on film. I mean, you're an actor, but you're also an Academy member, so you, you pretty much watch everything. But I would assume coming to something like this, you will see a movie that Academy voters will never see, right? There are movies being shown here that are still trying to find their way to yes, people's eyeballs. that's totally possible, and there's some gems yeah. to be seen that may never make it in the wider across the country and wider distribution. So there's always a, a gem and a, and a joy in seeing something that uh, that other people you might never have discovered otherwise. So it's exciting. I mean, I find sometimes that I think, well, I'll see a movie here or at another film festival that I'll love, and then a year later I'll go, wait a minute, where is that movie now? What what happened to it? I mean, it, it seems sometimes sort of fundamentally unfair. It's tragic <laughs> yeah. at times. 
But that's that's the great thing about festivals and Netflix. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> True. Well, I mean, and we'll be talking about this as the show moves along here, too, because, Kelly, I mean, I, there, there was just a panel upstairs from here talking about all the distribution met- methods, all the new platforms. And in a way, I mean, we're living in this in this great moment where a lot of stuff can get seen by a lot of people. Right. But it also feels like a very chaotic moment where stuff can just as easily get lost in this incredible madhouse. Oh, it does. It, it absolutely does. And it's, as Mary Kay said, it's, you know, it is the great thing about uh, festivals is because you know, especially um, documentaries, it's, you know, it's, it's hard for them to have a life outside of festivals sometimes if they don't get a distribution deal. And these, you know, these documentaries that we have here should be seen by, in my estimation, absolutely everybody. And certainly shorts you're never going to see anyplace else but, with, you know, from festivals. But also on the narrative side, there are so many wonderful stories. And these, these filmmakers, you know, they do their Kickstarter campaigns and they, they work so hard to get, you know, their story told up on a screen. So, you know, I, I hope that there's some distribution companies out there waiting to pick them up. It is interesting, though, with the way the game's changing. I just read this morning that Abel Ferrara, a very well-acclaimed, well-established director, is doing a Kickstarter campaign sure. because, he, because he wants the final cut. Mm-hmm. He wants control. Yeah. I mean, if you raise your own money. Mary Kay, do you, do you feel as though that also that kind of changes the equation, that sometimes even some a well-established filmmaker can get a little bit more control over his work if you can figure out a different way to get the movie seen? It's true. The movie we were talking about earlier, I'll See You in My Dreams, mm-hmm. was a Kickstarter film. It was made for $1.49, and it was a beautifully produced film. I mean, we had everything we needed. We had all the time we needed. So it's interesting how there is a life where there's a will, there's a way. Right. Well, you have to be smart, right? You have to you sort have of... You have to be smart. You have to figure out everything... And you have to really want to get it done. Yeah. Sometimes it takes... I'm sure these guys will tell you a lot of sacrifice and just when you think it's going it doesn't go and then this falls through and that falls through and you have to have the strong iron stomach to make it through all that and I'm sure they'll give you details well that could be a very good segue uh, first of all I know you guys have to move on to your other commitments but Thank it's you. been great to visit with Kelly Vickery the founder of this uh, Berkshire International Film Festival and to finally get Mary Kay place on the jurors yeah. are always great they, you guys always want to come on but you actually have but to it's be. a live show and then we have shows we're supposed to be watching I, at I, the right. same they, time schedule. I've, I keep them working plus she's had no sleep whatsoever right that's right. Yeah. Cross-eyed. Right. <laughs> so if you if you see Mary Kay Place dozing off somewhere, please wake her up. But and never, make sure in, a never, never in a movie. Never, never, It'll never happen. No, but Absolutely she's on L.A. Not. Times. She got no sleep last night. All right. Thanks. We'll, we'll let Thank you. you we'll, we'll let you sneak out, uh, and uh, I'll sort of switch over here while that's happening. Uh, we're going to just uh, highlight one particular narrative film right now, and we've got three people from the film here. I'm going to keep talking while we do. This is like hockey. We're going to do sort of a line switch here. We're going to talk a little bit uh, about the movie Don't Worry Baby, uh, one of the narrative films that's being shown here. When we say narrative, we mean sort of essentially a a fictional film, a feature film. Uh, There are lots of other words for it as well. So joining us now is uh, our Nick Shore, Julian Franciforte, and Tom Kyer. They are all either producers or directors or writers or some combination thereof with Don't Worry Baby. So, Julian, start us off. Tell us, first of all, what Don't Worry Baby is. What is this movie? It's a movie about a father and son who unknowingly sleep with the same woman. and she has. A Wait ch- a minute, that's my life, too. <laughs> so, uh, she has a child, and over the course of a week, they figure out who the father is through a paternity test, and in that time, they kind of compete over the affection of the child. 
So it's kind of a dark comedy with a father-son competition type of thing. And give us a sense, uh, one of you, just sort of how long it has taken, what the process has been to bring this movie to the screen. You can't just snap your fingers and make this happen. So, so what's the journey been like? We started development on the project back in early 2012. 12. Almost at 13. It's been that long. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, three years. There's a whole series of decisions that you have to make, and I'd be interested to hear you guys talk a little bit about this. One sense that I have is, well, if you go back to the early 2000s, suddenly because of digital technology and a bunch of other stuff, a lot of people could make $50,000 films, but a lot of them kind of looked like they were $50,000 films because people didn't know what they were doing. But my sense now is that if people are really smart from the very beginning, make every decision based on sort of, you know, what, what their ultimate back end can be and all this kind of stuff that, you know, she just talked about a film that was made for $1.49, which mm -hmm. I think was a metaphor, but, right. <laughs> um, but it, it's a great looking film, right? You can do a film that doesn't look like a $50,000 film now. Absolutely. You know, um, the access to amazing equipment, you know, the reality is, is that we're shooting with the same cameras that, you know, any of the movies that are coming out of Hollywood are shot on. And, you know, just having good locations and good cameras and a good crew, you can get a lot done and make it look great without necessarily spending as much cash as you once maybe needed to. I assume there are other decisions that you do have to make, though. I mean, for example... If you can get Mary Kay Place to work for you for $1.49 because she loves the project, she's friends with somebody, great. But other than that, you're probably smart not to, to, to look for actors who are good actors, who fit the roles, but aren't necessarily people who are going to cost you a fortune. We weren't really in a position where like, we could even get any of those actors. You know, <laughs> I think that everybody that did it just really wanted to be part of the movie, and we had to like, pick people that wanted to do a guerrilla film. So we weren't trying to look for like, the biggest actor we could. We were trying to look for the person who wanted to make the film like we did. Yeah, I don't think we mentioned this, but all of the characters are guerrillas in this movie. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, one, one thing we did learn was you definitely need to go where the excitement is. What do you mean by that? So <clears throat> when we're reaching out to actors, whoever responds you know, the best at the script yeah. is probably the one you want to work with. It will make your life so much easier. Unless they're a terrible actor. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you raise money for this? You, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't do a Kickstarter. You, did you do conventional kinds of funding sources? Or? We're we, going to we, do a Kickstarter. Yeah, we will be doing a Kickstarter. Yeah. This, this festival experience is, is starting to amount to much more than we thought. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Not every festival will put you up or fly you out. We think it's important to So you're going broke, basically. Going totally broke. <laughs> yeah. And so has this process, I don't know, does it make you want to make another movie? They were just over that panel, they were sort of saying yes. that even Robert Benton said, you know what you're doing when you're making a movie? You're thinking about your next movie. You're making a movie that will allow you to make your next movie. Is that kind of the, the place you guys are at? Yeah, I wasn't thinking like that when I was making the film. That's my first film, but that is very much the case. Well, uh, the movie is Don't Worry Baby. Which is a great title, except that when you Google it, you get the Beach Boys song. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> they <laughs> copied things, us. Things could be worse. Yeah, there could be yeah. worse problems. All right, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Colin. Uh, we're going to grab a break. We're going to come back with more. Hoping things would work out right. And that's why God made the movie. We are live from the red carpet of uh, the Brookshire International Film Festival. When I say red carpet, the carpeting happens to be red here, but it, it sounds more glamorous anyway. We are going to talk to... We have a cast of thousands, as usual, here for the Brookshire International Film Festival. We're up in Great Barrington. If you're hearing this on Friday night, uh, you can get down and see some movies on Saturday and Sunday. If you're hearing this on Monday or whatever other, other day, uh, you missed a great festival, or if you're listening on the Internet. But you also can track down these movies, because all of them will find a distribu uh, distribution if 
they haven't already, and uh, you'll have great experiences with them. Let me tell you, tell you a little bit about who's here right now, uh, if, if I can figure it out. From from the uh, documentary Frame by Frame, uh, Alexandria Bombach, uh, director and producer, and uh, Mo Scarpelli, who's our co-director. Co-director? I got that right? Uh, Courtney Mom, she's a co-writer for Bob and the Trees, which is, uh, well, it, we'll have to explain it. I won't be able to explain it in any uh, short way. Then, uh, also from uh, the movie Romeo is Bleeding, this is a documentary, Michael Klein, the producer, Jason Zeldis, the director. I got through the introductions. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's all we have time for, but thanks for coming <laughs> by. Yeah, anyway, that was great. One of the things that we were talking about in the first segment, one of the themes that I sort of see running through a lot of the movies that I'm seeing so far here is that whole question of, is is this worth dying for? Is it worth dying to climb this mountain? Is it worth dying to go back into war after World War II and become an Israeli fighter uh, a pilot? So, um, Alexandria, you're, I mean, one of your characters or one of your protagonists in your documentary flat out brings this up. I think the, the woman says, I might die being a photographer in Afghanistan, but it's worth it, right? Yeah, the, um, Mo and I followed Farzana, and she's an amazing person and um, has a lot of courage and I think um, she feels an immense responsibility and we just spent a good month with her at different film festivals talking to her about that and it's hard for her I mean she's a normal human just like the rest of us but um, with the experience that she's had through the Soviet regime through the Civil War through the Taliban um, she's been through it herself and she Mm. knows how important it is to share these voices. And Mo as you guys were following Afghanistan's photojournalists often into some of the trouble spots that photojournalists go rushing into, did you feel as though you had to ask yourself this question too? Like, this is actually, I'm in a dangerous place sometimes. Is this worth doing? Yeah, I think uh, both Alexandria and I come from a place of hearing about Afghanistan mostly through headlines, you know, through suicide attacks and explosions. Everything sounds so crazy all the time, but really we get there and we find that normal life goes on. People are shopping for fresh fruit in the markets and people are you know, having a peaceful moment of prayer by themselves and people are living life. And so a lot of our experience, actually, and a lot of what is reflected in the film is this Afghanistan you don't usually get to see. We do follow the photographers. We do run after them into, you know, the things they're covering, which sometimes are suicide attacks. But, you know, these photographers also go home and have tea and go to the grocery store and do all the other things. And and so you really get to know them as humans in their normal everyday life alongside this, like, the insidious risks of being a journalist in Afghanistan. The other thing that I I was struck by watching the movie is, I mean, one of the tensions in the documentary is that photography was essentially taken away by the Taliban. I mean, it became a forbidden thing. Even to own photographs, you know, they would show up and rip up your photographs and stuff like that. And that it is, to quote Joni Mitchell, sometimes you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And, And that, in some ways, here in this country... You know, we often are having little battles. We've been having little battles where I come from, with the government and with the police, about what photos the press can have access to. And these are really important. One of your characters, um, Alexandria says, I keep calling them characters, they're actual people. One of, your, one of your people, one of your photographers says, if you don't have photography, you don't have a culture, right? Yeah, he says, um, without photography, we don't have an identity. And that was a huge exploration in the film for us because we wanted to not only capture what that had meant to have that ban of photography for that time, but what it means now that they're able to have this fledgling free press and what it means for the country. And most of all, what it means to tell true stories and capture not only the war and what's going on, but an entire culture, like showing every aspect of life and what that means to them and that other Afghans get to see that and celebrate that too and celebrate the good things, but also have a voice for a lot of the problems. 
I haven't seen Romeo is Bleeding yet. He hasn't been shown at the festival yet. But I sense there are some common themes here, right? There are some real questions yes. about cultural expression, what it can do. First of all, maybe just, um, uh, Jason, you could begin sort of sketch out the movie for people. Yeah, of course. Uh, so Romeo's Bleeding follows a young poet from Richmond, California, which is outside of Oakland in the Bay Area. And Richmond has had a turf war in the black community stretching back to World War II. Uh, so Dante is the youngest son of one of the most notorious gangsters from the north side of town. And he started writing about all these traumatic experiences he'd witnessed or lived through, and he became a locally famous poet in the Bay Area. And that's where we pick up the story uh, after he had founded this arts organization called Raw Talent. So we follow him over the course of the school year as he takes... Uh, he and all of his students take the experiences that they live through in their environment and adapt it into a modern-day Romeo and Juliet set in Richmond, California, as a uh, healthy way to process mm -hmm. uh, the challenges mm -hmm. that they face on a day-to-day -day basis. Michael Klein, my sense is, I don't know if you, if you were hearing common themes as they were talking, but this... Both of these movies are about sort of clashes between culture and violence. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually just got to see Frame by Frame this morning, mm -hmm. and it was fantastic. And I saw it with uh, DeAndre Evans, who's one of the subjects in our film, who mm -hmm. lives in Richmond and is going through the same thing. And Richmond is however many thousands of miles away from Afghanistan, but he connected in the same way. And he's like, the way that they express their, themselves through photography and how we express ourselves through poetry, it's the same thing. The, how you talk about it in your film that photography is a universal language art is a universal language and self-expression and so it's it's definitely a very similar art is activism yeah in both of these films very much alive and present okay we've got one more member of the panel i want to get her into the conversation we we, we talked a lot last night at uh, the opening party uh courtney mom is here she's co-writer of bob and the trees well first of all this is a movie that has an unusually strong connection to where we are right now it absolutely does um it was filmed in uh, the town we live in, Sandusfield, which is about a half hour from here, and it features completely local talent except for one actress that we imported. Although this doesn't, is, isn't as violent or dangerous a place as Afghanistan or Richmond can be, uh, after our conversation last night, I'm pretty sure we're here in Twin Peaks right now. I mean, this is... Oh, yeah. Well, I mean... It's about, um, Bob and the Trees is about logging and loggers. And logging, I think, after crab fishing, is the second most dangerous occupation mm -hmm. in America. Although, having seen Maru last night, I now think <laughs> rock climbing. Well, let's just not even talk about rock climbers. But, right. um, yeah, so we're really proud to be here because this is our home. And tell us about the movie. So the movie Bob and the Trees is about Bob, a real-life logger. He's in his mid-50s, and he's very much a last man standing in the sustainable forestry mm industry and he's trying to do his things his way but not the modern way he doesn't understand how the internet works he doesn't have a web presence and he's losing business to some upstarts around town who are more willing to um you know outsource the wood and the offshore logging and they don't have as much of a problem with it and um in order to keep up with a really particularly hard winter when the fuel prices are way too high he makes an incredibly risky business decision um, that puts his, his, his family and his business in peril. You know, I want to talk to all of you about this, although I'm getting a very serious-looking signal from Kelsey Bissell. I'm, I'm going to have to stretch this a little <laughs> bit because this is an important thing to talk about, and this is something that they can all talk about a little bit. But, Courtney, I'm going to stay with you for a second. One of the things that I think um, is coming up for people who watch uh, films that are documentaries or, or narratives that are kind of documentary-like is sort of the blurring of those yeah. distinctions. And, like, I watched the Kurt Cobain uh, documentary on HBO recently, and I'm thinking... I can't even figure out what's 
you know, what's animated, what's added, what's real, what's not real. So you guys had to make a decision about this movie, right? We had to make a lot of decisions, and I'm actually a fiction writer, and so uh, I wrote the movie with my husband, and it was tough because I wanted to put more fictional elements in. I wanted to add inciting incidents and really create a narrative, and he wanted to really pare it down and, and make it as lifelike as possible. And um, he won, and he was right. And, mm-hmm. and I think when you watch the film, if you watch the film, it's interesting to me looking forward in film, in cinema, where we'll go with casting. Not mm. not me, but in general, because there's so many non-actors giving such vital performances that you can't necessarily get out of. Actors are not in the same way, and um, we had a really authentic performances because people were living their own lives. So yeah. it is, a, you know, it's a smoothie of uh, <laughs> narrative and non-fiction, and it's, it's, I think it's tasty. Um, how, how did <laughs> that seems like a Can blurb? Can I take that some. back, please? No, Terrible no. word. Um, no, I think that's going to be the blurb for the movie. Actually, oh, no, no. it's a smoothie of narrative and nonfiction, and it's Brought very tasty. Jamba Juice. <laughs> Sorry, um, Diego, forgive me. Uh, so, um, well, you know, you guys have to struggle with this. I mean, every documentary I see now, obviously, there are things that you can show in real time things that you have to do added footage with. I'd be interested to know from both teams here sort of how you guys approach that question. About the style of putting the film together. Yeah. Well, one asset that we had is that we're following poets. Mm -hmm. And honestly, now that I've made a film about poets, I don't know any other way to make a film Mm -hmm. because they're already in such a visual and visceral way describing their environment Mm -hmm. and giving poetic license to the city that they come from, the challenges they face in their life. And that kind of gives us, the filmmakers, poetic license to interpret it using whatever we have at our disposal, whether that's like um, stylistic recreations of the play they put on Mm -hmm. or beauty shots of their city or verite or archival. So in the end, our film kind of becomes, well, a smoothie (laughs) now that that's thrown out there. Uh, And that's what I love about documentaries right now is that you know, you're getting at a deeper truth, but you can use anything mm-hmm. at your disposal in order to deliver that truth in the most effective way. Yeah. I'm getting a message from the Bob and the Trees people that they now actually control that term. That you are, <laughs> you are free to call your movie a puree. I've already made, yes, um. I have hashtags. I actually would prefer to have puree. We're, we're cold-pressed juice then. Right, That's fine. Root vegetable, vegetables figure you, in our film, so it's y- no You can fruit. fight this out afterwards. Uh, <laughs> I don't want anything that ugly happening on the air. So, um, Alexandria and Mo, can you give us a sense for you guys? I, I mean, having watched the movie, I, I didn't really feel like you had to do a lot of recreations. You'd be, exciting things are sort of happening in real time. I think photography was such an inspiration for us. Our photographers' photography is so powerful and that's so strong that it was a really great guidance and also a challenge for us in our own cinematography to make it try to match it. And so that was a big part of like when we were going out and shooting, thinking about setting things up in a way where it, it matched the magnificence of their photography. Mm. Yeah, and I think also because they're journalists, there was an obligation to show, maybe on the fact that Afghanistan is just beautiful, like what we shot, we we don't want to alter it. We just want to show you what we saw and what they saw. And so there was, you know, that kind of keeping in line with with the same, like, journalistic, I guess. Yeah. um, You had a lot to work with. Yeah. Um, It was pretty obvious. All right. Uh, I I would like to talk about this for another 10 minutes or so, but... uh 
the ruthless Kelsey Abyssal is giving me that signal. Thanks so much to all of you, and you. Um, you and uh, just keep your well. eyes, all of you, keep your eyes peeled for Bob in the Trees and Frame by Frame and uh, Romeo is Bleeding. We're here at the Berkshire International Film Festival. It's in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Uh, we've never done this before, I think. We've been up here for four years now, but we've never really devoted a segment to shorts, to short subjects, or, or to the shorts that you wear on your body. Uh, but this is about short subjects. This is about short films. We have four filmmakers here. We almost had three Todds. Uh, as of last night, it seemed like we would be able to book three different director, writer, producers, all named Todd, all making short films. But it, the whole thing fell apart. Uh, it's with the lawyers now. Uh, so with us is Todd Kruger. He's a director, writer, producer for Exposure. Todd Kipp uh, from Consolation Prize. He's a director, writer. Reynaldo Marcus Green, director and writer of Stop. Uh, and Claire Seckler, writer and producer, and I think everything else, too, for Humpty. Very quickly, I'm going to have you sketch out um, these films. Many of the films that we've talked about today appear to be based on my life. Todd Kruger, I think your film is based on my life as well. Tell us uh, what it is. Yes, Exposure is about a guy and a girl with social anxiety disorder that gets set up by their therapist to meet at a speed dating event. And much like what your life is like, awkwardness ensues. Yes, actually. And Todd Kipp, tell us about Constellation Prize. Constellation Prize is a drama. It's about this deadbeat dad who lives on this uh, wasteland of wrecked cars and trucks, and he gets this surprise weekend visit from his son yeah. and carries on from there. Actually, I live on a wasteland of cars and trucks, too. So, um, I think this might be some kind of dream I'm having, you know, or a Truman Show thing. Claire, tell us about Humpty. Humpty is a short film that I wrote and directed, and it's, uh, it's about a young couple with an unexpected pregnancy. And when the boyfriend realizes his girlfriend doesn't think he's ready to be a dad, he decides the best way to prove to her that he is is to retake a high school parenting test he failed and carry an egg around for a week. <laughs> All right. Uh, and, Ronaldo, tell us about Stop. Uh, Stop is about a young man who's uh, stopped by the police on his way home from, from practice. And it's dealing with uh, stop or frisk policy in, in New York City and racial profiling. It really is fresh as today's headlines just in terms of what we've been talking about as a nation right now in, in racial disparities. I want to just get all of you to talk a little bit about short films and, and where, where they live. You know, I mean, uh, they live ideally on the Oscar nominee reels that everybody goes to see. But where else do short films, like Claire, where, where, where does your film live? Where do people get to see it for the most part? Sure. Uh, Humpty's been going around festivals a bit, which is great. It's really fun to go to different communities and screen it for such disparate audiences. Uh, we're also going to be um, on PBS in the fall, which is really exciting. We got picked up by a program called Film School Shorts with KQED. So that's that's going to be probably the most broadly available uh, location on, on there and then online. Todd Kruger, how about you? Um, you can see exposure at my parents' house. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, you know, it, it's hard to get the shorts out there. I've been right. doing the festivals too, which is really fun, but that's for like dozens of people at a time. Yeah. It's hard to get shorts out there and the the very few distribution channels that approach us are, you know, it's like we can get you to 100 people at a time. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Oscars, it's like that's such a long shot and you have to jump through a lot of hoops. For me, I'm going to throw it up on my website that I'm creating this summer that kind of advertises me as a filmmaker. Uh, but other than that, you know, it's just me trying to whore myself out. It's, it's probably hard to find, but I'd love to show it to the whole world if possible. Well, maybe we could host it on the WNPR website. All right, Talk cool. Well, you know, I mean, this gets to um, a point, though, um, Todd Kipp, which is, was talking to some other filmmakers here today, people that we've talked to in the past, and they're here with a different film, and there was a panel upstairs talking about some of the new platforms where, you know, mm -hmm. where, and, and they were sort of saying, well, you know, there, there are some people who want to make a movie because they've seen other movies, and so they want to make a movie like the other movies that they've seen, and they want people to see it the way that they saw all the other movies. He, this guy was saying to me, you know, if I 
if I'm going to make a movie in an era where people are watching movies on their phones, on Vimeo, so I'll make that movie. I mean, in some ways, you, you kind of do have to change with the game. And at that level, the short film may have kind of an advantage. If films are going to become more like MP3s, good to be short. Does I would that agree sense? with that. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> well, then, yeah, it's true. I mean, they've been talking a lot about where it's going to live, but because the new audiences are just finding it on their phones and things like that, it's not really realistic to think, hey, I'm going to make a film and it's automatically going to play in a theater. Mm-hmm. Your audience is much larger online. No question. Ronaldo, why, why choose the short film format? I mean, this is a topic you could have gone 85 minutes on, right? Uh, I don't think it was an 85 minutes. This was an incident, a specific isolated moment. I thought it fit well in the short form a longer movie i don't think it would be one one sort of dramatic incident in a, mm-hmm. in a long form I don't, I don't think it could um it could be a subplot of a larger movie but mm-hmm. this this particular it, it fit this format this was also part of a third year project at nyu grad film which was to create a short film mm-hmm. uh, to do it for no money uh so it was a specific thing um and i think it it's you know it's going to live online it was it was picked up uh you know at sundance by Condé nas and it's on their site um, but I think it really is up to the filmmaker to push the film as much as they possibly can as well. So how aggressive you are in trying to identify partners for your film and trying to get an audience for it. So I think, you know, it's just as much creative for the, you know, for the filmmaker to go out there and try to find partners and then get it to a broader audience. So that's something that I'm doing with my film now. It's not just Condé Nast, but how do I get an international distributor uh, to see my film? Because there's other countries that might want to see my movie. Do you guys, does anybody else want to say anything more? I, I feel like this is a good time in a way just because there are so many different possibilities. You know, there are so many different ways that people, and I, and I really do feel as though consumption of movies is going to switch a little bit. The, the, your, the younger generation is not going to be necessarily really, really as eager to go put their bottoms down in a, in a movie theater. Yeah, if we're talking about the commercialism of film, mm. but, you know, one of the wonderful things about going to these festivals is... We meet other filmmakers that made their projects purely for the art. And when film started, there were no features or shorts. They were just movies because they weren't classified yet. And then people realized how to make money off of them, and they put them into these convenient categories of certain lengths. Mm-hmm. And so now short films aren't distributed in a way that people can see them. So if you make a short film, chances are you know, your main priority is to be true to your, the artist within as opposed to commercialize it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you're talking about in terms of getting people to see it, it's going to be easier to communicate with people in short form. But I don't think any one of us were thinking, we got to get those 12-year-olds to watch our movies on their iPhones. You know, we were just trying to be artists. And then after the fact, it's like, hey, can I make money doing this? You know? Well, the other part of it, for you, people with social anxiety disorder, they don't want to go to the movies anyway. They want to watch it, (laughs) you know, in as private a way as possible. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Does anybody else want to sort of reflect on, on what's being said here? I mean, we've been talking a bit at Biff about about these topics of like where things are going. Everyone's always wondering where the film industry is going. Is it going to be like the music industry? Is it going to change? Is everything going to be online? Is it going to be small viewing formats or larger? And and it doesn't seem to have chosen yet. So we're all sort of playing fast and loose and trying different things. And people are trying web series. They're trying shorts they're trying branded content is becoming a bigger form of of uh making money for filmmakers and Mm -hmm. and uh and then i think everyone most people seem really excited about television and film still uh in terms of like long-term thinking but there are so many venues and areas you can play now so it's really fun it's fun to try all different kinds yeah i I do think short films are becoming more and more exotic and Mm -hmm. attention spans are just 
you know, becoming shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge opportunity. And, and, I, and I realized that this year selling my film at a major festival was like, who buys short films? That, that was something that wasn't really happening before. Mm-hmm. So I think there's more. And, and short films are being commissioned by lots of people now. So it's, it is a, a huge opportunity for people because cameras are getting cheaper and cheaper. Mm-hmm. So it's an opportunity for lots of people to start making film. I think the, the film festivals help to curate that process, which is wonderful. So I think once there's a partnership between sort of the film festivals and the distribution companies to say, hey, we're going to start curating that content and then getting a platform to get online, you know, you're going to see, you know, lots more sales go up for short films. But I think there's a huge opportunity for filmmakers in, in the short film form. It's a great way to showcase your talents and your interests. Well, Kelsey Bissell is holding up only one finger now. That's a bad thing. So uh, I'm just going to encourage people to go and <laughs> seek out shorts. It's all her fault. Talk to her. Uh, I'm going to encourage people to seek out shorts and uh, particularly to seek out uh, exposure, consolation prize, stop, and Humpty. And those, all of those things can be organized into one single sentence. I'm just not able to be able to. <laughs> there's a verb. I, just, I feel like we could probably do it anyway. And thanks very much to these filmmakers for coming here. And thanks very much once again to the Brookshire International Film Festival. Yeah. We come here so every year. Yeah. So and we always have a good time. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe with help from Katie Talarski, Tucker Ives, Lydia Brown, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Alex Dubin, Deborah Timms, and Jules Lefevre. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mary Kay Place. For stories, guest photos, and show pages, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, why do bad things happen, and why do we sometimes really enjoy it when they do? And now, back to Colin. One thing that I can tell you, uh, because uh, I'm back here in Connecticut now, uh, is that after we talked to the makers of Romeo is Bleeding up in Great Barrington, it won the Best Documentary Award, the juried award in the Brookshire International Film Festival. So that's a little follow-up. Now we're going to talk to Pete Hammond. Uh, He's a critic uh, and columnist for Deadline. And he's one of the people who goes to Cannes. Um, First of all, I've, I've always been a little uncertain, Pete, about how to say this. Is Cannes how you say it? Uh, you can say con, or you can say can, but it's really somewhere in the middle there. It's sort of con. All right. It's always yeah. wrong. Whenever you say a French word, it's always I know. slightly I, wrong. I tend to, like, shorthand, I keep saying can, but that's an American kind of thing. Right. That's not really how they say it. Right. So. Yes, I think it causes your order at the restaurant to be delayed slightly. Uh, very much. Yes. So, <laughs> and, and to that point, maybe even before we get into the nitty-gritty of, of, um, of, of the films served up at con this year, What's it like to be a critic at Con? What's what's your day? What are your days and nights like uh, in that environment? Well, it's pretty much uh, sleep deprivation city, is what I call it, uh, because for me, it's uh, it starts in the morning. At the very first movie they show is at eight thirty, and that's generally the uh, the first press screening of the day. And it's fill it fills that big, you know, where they have the premieres at night. That's the same theater that the uh, press will see the movie in at eight thirty in the morning or various other times. But um, it's like 2,000 seats, and it fills at that hour. You know, it's you're just in a different 
world. It's a, I call it a French fog when you're when you're at the Cannes Film Festival because uh, it's nonstop from that point. And I can see up to four or five movies a day, depending on on the day. And uh, the last one may be around nine forty-five, ten o'clock at night if you're you know on that kind of schedule. And uh, and then there's all these dinners, our parties, our parties for the movies. You know because they will have uh, two premieres a night in Cannes. It's like going to the Oscars twice every night on that red carpet. And they have parties generally after those for some of the bigger uh, movies. And I get invited to a lot of those, so I will show up at those, even if I saw the movie at 8.30 in the morning or the night before, sometimes they have press screenings. Um, and then there's uh, interviews and all sorts of things you're doing there, and you're running up and down that set all the time, in my case with a heavy briefcase. So I, I like to go what I call on the canned diet because I usually lose a few pounds doing that festival, oddly enough, being in France where all the food is. So, um, but I tend to eat at the Steak and Shake or McDonald's more often than not at one <laughs> thirty in the morning. <laughs> also, not a good way to lose weight. But so yeah. you have this kind of convergence of this almost kind of manic pace, people's heightened emotions, parties that you're going to, many films that you're seeing per day, and and it kind of raises a question, which you raise in your own piece about whether this is a place to be really clear-headed about you know what the great films of the coming year are. Uh, you know, you mentioned Foxcatcher last year as being a movie yeah. that kind of emerged in. Con. And, you know, it never really quite, I mean, it got some Oscar nominations, but it never quite got traction, uh, you know, with an American film going public. It's almost as if there's, there's sort of a, a Franco bubble there that, not a, <laughs> that ja- movie, not a James Franco enough, bubble. It's more of a, a European movie in its tone and its pace. And uh, I think that's why it did so well uh, there and it won the Best Director Award for Bennett Miller. And ultimately, the Academy itself uh, liked it and they liked Bennett Miller. But I think you're right. I think we with the general public, I think the movie was a bit of a head scratcher. And uh, so, you know, but uh, this is clear of a lot of movies that are accepted in the can in the competition and that sort of thing. It's much different. You know, they're looking at it from a different point of view, and it's really an art house festival. I'd say the most of the movies that play outside of the market are a couple of movies that they do to get the glamour thing, like uh, Mad Max, Fury Road, or that are out of competition, or Disney Pixar's Inside Out, which was there this year, which is a terrific movie. Very commercial movies, and, and they like to do that, too. But their general fare at Cannes is very art house, very independent-minded uh, kind of cinema. And so you do have these favorites that emerge. I mean, this year it really does seem to have been Carol, right? This is a yes. picture directed well, by Todd Haynes. I think there's Haynes. a few films in terms of what will go on. Uh, you know, this is hard because for a distributor, if you have a movie like Carol, it's not scheduled to open till mid-December in the United States. So uh, that's a long time to keep this going. So it's going to have to go travel the fall film festival circuit, too. Um, to keep it alive in the in the game there until it gets uh, opening, because uh, can is you know it got a lot of splash out of can, but that wears off pretty quickly once you get into the fall and all of these movies start opening that are Oscar contenders. But I would say definitely in terms of critical reception, uh, Carol. Uh, was probably the best one in terms of uh, Oscar potential. However, uh, it didn't win many prizes from the jury. It, it only tied for Best Actress with Rooney Mara, which was surprising to me because, really, uh, Kate Blanchett, 
uh, is terrific in that film. And, and I thought if they're going to have a tie for Best Actress, it would have been between her and Rooney Mara. Uh, but uh, she, she got nothing, and the picture got nothing after that, too. So that was a little bit surprising uh, that it didn't do better with the, uh, with the Cannes jury, which uh, was run by the Coen brothers this year. Um, we, we should mention this. So this is sort of a period 50s lesbian romance between uh, between Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, right? Yes, yes, from Todd Haynes, who's obsessed with uh, the 50s, by the way, because he did a terrific film with Julianne Moore oh, yeah. called Far From Heaven a few years ago. Another forbidden romance, too. Yes, exactly, and also dealt with some gay themes, too. Um, this movie is exceptionally well made, as was that one, I think. And uh, it's this one, Todd, I, I talked to him at their party, and he said, well, this one's different because this is set in the early 50s. This is set in 1952, <laughs> and he thinks that's a different period than 1957 when his other one was set. But nevertheless, the guy's obsessed with the 50s, and he does well uh, with uh, female performances. He's kind of like, harkens back to those great female directors uh, of the 40s and 50s, like George Cukor or Douglas Sirk, or those who gave great roles to women. And that's what this movie's really doing as well. And uh, look, there's a kind of a hot love scene. I wouldn't say it's like Blue is the Warmest Color, the great lesbian movie that won the Palme d'Or a couple of years ago, but I would say it's pretty hot considering you're looking at uh, Kate Blanchett and uh, Rooney Mara, you know, mainstream actresses uh, doing that. So I think that'll cause a, a little bit of a stir maybe when it opens here. Who knows? Nothing will ever replace Mulholland Drive in my heart. But, <laughs> um, but we shouldn't be talking about this anyway. Uh, yeah. So we're talking to Peter Hammond right now. Uh, so great to, to talk to you about Khan. So, you know, the other thing that happens, I think, in this heightened emotional Franco bubble of Khan, and also just sort of the way uh, um, an international art house oriented audience is going to react to films is you not only get these waves of positivism about uh, certain films that may or may not be able to sustain that, but I think you also get these kind of hysterical rejections of films. Yeah. So Gus Van Sant, who's, you know, ordinarily a darling uh, over there, yeah, his film was, was roundly booed, right? Well, you know, that was an interesting thing, and I, I was, like, on the other side of the fence on that movie. I really liked it, and I sat there in that press screening. And mind, mind you, when you say roundly booed over there, you're talking about roundly booed at the end of a press screening at 8.30 in the morning. It, was, it got a two-and-a-half-minute standing ovation at its actual premiere in Cannes, but what gets reported is because they allow the press to go whole hog before they even get to those premieres, um, it, it, it was killed by the critics. They just pounced on it. And, and I thought the movie worked for me. I, you know, as I watched it, no one walked out. There was no derisive laughter. The movie was fine. And all of a sudden you heard this huge wave of boos at the end. And it made no sense because usually if they're going to boo, you see people walking out a lot in Cannes. And I saw nobody walking out of that, that movie. So I was surprised. I think uh, the filmmakers were very surprised. I think it was a concerted effort probably to influence the jury because a lot of jury members come to those press screenings too. And uh, for whatever reason, it's a sentimental movie. It's a different kind of movie. It's Gus Van Sant. And now Gus has won the Palme d'Or before. He's, uh, he's beloved in Cannes. He comes many times with his films. But the kind of Gus Van Sant film they like is more like Elephant, which won the Palme mm -hmm. d'Or, which is very minimalist filmmaking, the kind of thing that the critics there, particularly the French critics like, or a movie that's actually, I think, pretty much unwatchable called Jerry, uh, which is Matt Damon and uh, walking across the desert for two hours. Um, those kind of movies play well in Cannes with certain kinds of critics and the critics at these screenings. So they didn't see that kind of movie here. They saw a very sentimental kind of film, Matthew McConaughey, 
quite different. But I, I like the film a lot, and uh, actually, I think uh, once it finally opens, probably not this year, I would say they're going to try to distance it as much as they can <laughs> from this festival. This is the risk when you go to Cannes. You know, you may have great you know times like Gus Van Sant did with Elephant and, and win the pinnacle, win the Palme d'Or, or you may be right down at the bottom. And I think he was really hurt by it. I saw him at the party after their good screening that they had and he stayed a few minutes but then he was gone and he, even the filmmaker the other filmmakers there and everybody were looking for him and they couldn't find him so i think he was a little uh down about that reception and quite taken by surprise quite frankly but i didn't think it was deserved but that's can for you you know they love and that wasn't the only movie that got booed by the way there, there were boos in several others but that one was the one that made the news we should say that this is matthew mcconaughey and ken watanabe it's about a, a forest in japan where people go to commit suicide and they they're they're both they're on that mission and they meet up. And yes, exactly. And it's very ethereal, this movie. It's very spiritual. Um, it definitely will have an audience. Um, you know, it's very tough to recover from something because the perception becomes the truth. And the perception now uh, is that it was booed at Cannes and it was terrible at Cannes and, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, so the uh, the marketers here have a, a challenge uh, to wipe that memory away. And quite frankly, the critics used it as an excuse to pile on. It was, I, I thought it was quite unfair. But, hey, that's just me, you know. Uh, hey, uh, we saw that this weekend with uh, – with uh, Cameron Crowe, too. You know, they, they want to build you up, and then they want to tear you down, and they're in the tear-down mode right now of Gus Van Sant and Cameron Crowe with Aloha. Um, you know, critics can be uh, very mean. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and social media makes it even worse. Hey, yeah. we've only got about a minute left, Pete Hammond. I, I want you to have a chance to, to, to toot the horn of the, the movie, whatever movie you really love that you can't wait to come to the U.S. so you can take your friends and say, I saw this at Cannes. Yeah, it was great. well, you know, there are a few, but I would point out a movie called Youth, uh, which Fox Searchlight picked up, uh, and they're going to release it, and it's their big Oscar movie. Uh, it's uh, Michael Caine, who's just going to get an Oscar nomination for this. He's 82 years old. He's terrific with Harvey Keitel, and they're two old guys that go to this spa in Switzerland and sort of ruminate on life and things. And then there's uh, Jane Fonda, who shows up in the middle of the movie for about seven minutes and just knocks it out of the park as an aging, bitter actress, uh, two-time Oscar winner who uh, really nails it to uh, Harvey Keitel, who's a, a director trying to get his uh, creative juices going for a, for a new movie that she is now refusing to star in, and she's done all of his movies. Anyway, it's really good. Rachel Weisz is in it. Paul Dano's in it. Uh, it's a different kind of movie. Paolo Sorrentino directed it, the Italian director, but it's in English, and he won an Oscar a couple of years ago for The Great Beauty. I would say look for that movie. I really was impressed with that one, as well as uh, a movie called Sicario with uh, Benicio Del Toro, and um, Emily Blunt. It's a drug cartel movie, very strong, that Lionsgate releases in September in the U.S. So that's one to look for to uh, come, in, come into America. Pete Hammond, great coverage from Khan, and thank you so much for joining us. Pete Hammond from uh, Deadline. Uh, we'll have to talk again in the future. This has been great. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Won't you watch this movie for me?